Hello, and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma, and I'm a director at Softway, a business to employee solutions company that creates products and offers services that help build resilience and high performance company cultures. I'm joined today, as always, by Mohammed Anwar, President and CEO, Softway. Hey, Mo. Hey, guys. Chris Petrie, Vice President. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. And last but not least, Frank Dana, my man. How's it going? Hey guys, can you hear me okay? <laughs> yes. We had I a lot of technical we had a lot of technical difficulties setting up this I can episode. Hear you. So Frank is <laughs> Frank is still um recovering from that. But uh today we have a fun one. We have a fun episode, guys. We're you know having work with thousands of leaders and organizations around the world. We've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't, and we've talked to a lot of people about adopting you know, our culture of resilience and adopting love as a business strategy itself. And when we come to the table with business leaders, we're always encouraging them to prioritize their people and their culture. And they're often, they often come to us trying to prioritize their people and their culture, right? Um, but we, we try to encourage them to prioritize, but not just prioritize, but invest, right, in their people. And when we say invest, we often also mean time and money. And sometimes, even when a business is trying to improve their culture, they're unwilling and or unable to invest in it. And today, we kind of wanted to share some of those experiences and stories and talk a little bit about essentially what excuses we've seen and heard and, and why those matter. So before we begin, we have to do some icebreakers. I'm going to try this format where we all get the same question. So I'm going to start with Chris. Chris, who is your celebrity doppelganger. I used to be told that it was Bobby Valentino. I don't know if you recall him. He's an RB artist from like the 2000 era. Um, Frank's Googling that was, yeah, that was who I was told I looked like when I was in college. Okay. Okay. Uh, Looking at Muhammad's face, I'm gonna jump to Frank first because Muhammad needs some more time to think about this. Frank, who's your celebrity doppelganger? So if I take off my glasses, people say I look like Shia LaBeouf. Hmm. Okay. Nice. So they've said more they've said that, that Maggie know. Maggie just said, "Oh snap!" in our private chat. That's high praise. Muhammad, mm-hmm. who is Can your you celebrity doppelganger? I don't. I've never really thought about it. Well, I just I gave know. you two other people's turns to, to think about it. I'm serious. I don't know. Maybe you guys have to help me out here. Okay. I let's, feel let's like play. that's a setup. That is a setup. <laughs> like, I feel like that's wait, a trap. That's a my trap. Answer would be wrong. I won't be able to recover from that because even with the best intentions, I'm like, <laughs> nobody's ever come to me and say, hey, you look like this celebrity. Like, no, I've never had that situation. Do you even think about it? I mean, well, there is a character in my head, but I don't want to say it. Maybe we'll do it off, Chris, <laughs> off air. You, YouTube's not our primary channel, but if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and leave in the comments who you think <laughs> Muhammad looks like. Just kidding. Don't do that or do. So let's move on. Awesome. Uh, so as I mentioned, <laughs> as I mentioned, we're talking about 
Um, love as a commitment. We're talking about love as a commitment strategy, and really, what we what we want to kind of talk about to start is the excuses. And I say that kind of dirty in a, laundry in a, in a in a very direct way because we view them as excuses, and we want to kind of just air that out right now. So, kind of want to go around the room a little bit. And maybe share our favorite. I mean, we have many to pick from in terms of excuses we've heard. And maybe share some of the favorite, our favorites, uh, the greatest hits, if you will, around what we've heard when we come to the table about addressing culture. Um, I'm going to pick on Chris to start us off. Chris, do you have a have a favorite excuse? Yes, like <laughs> we I use favorite in air quotes. It's actually not that, not that fun to <laughs> engage with, but. <clears throat> So as we've been talking about a lot on this podcast, you know, the DNI space is one that has gotten a lot of interest and a lot of a conversation happening at the executive levels of organizations. And, you know, we've been involved in a number of those conversations over the past few months. And it's really interesting because I think that there's a lot of excitement, a lot of interest, and a lot of the executives are making these, you know, really big and grandiose commitments out externally to their teams. And, you know, you think you get into the room with them that that's, that's, that commitment is going to be there. And while, yes, verbally it's there, when you start putting up the expectations or requirements on their time, you actually start getting, I call it the Heisman, where like everything starts coming up, flags start getting thrown on the play, you know, you get all the resistance and, you know, they start telling you, I only have this amount of time, but I still want the same outcome results, you know, um, <laughs> success metrics, et cetera. And we're trying to, let's say, for instance, we're, <clears throat> you know, helping leaders really think about how they become, how they can become more inclusive. What we're talking about there is behavior change. And I don't know anybody that can come in and change your behavior in two hours. <laughs> like, it's just not going to happen, right? But that sometimes is what executives think is, quote, unquote, ideal or comfortable for them. But really, when you are making these large commitments around the DNI space, that is behavior change that you're ultimately signing up for. And so while I understand that, you know, leaders are busy, and the larger your organization, the more strapped for time you are. But unfortunately, you vote with your time, especially in the executive, you know, uh, sort of section. And that was something that previous leaders that I worked for always said, it's like, Chris, I vote with my time. Where I spend my time is where I think it's priority. And I might need to give more of my time to areas or efforts that I know I'm committed to or I've expressed commitment to. And I think sometimes that <clears throat> that disagreement between those two things, what you say, but what you are willing to do um, is sometimes one of the biggest issues that we have to overcome as we're working with the executive teams around cultural issues or DNI issues, because it is it's squishy, right? It's not, you know, a, a hard thing where I can say, you do this, you get why, right? There is this idea in the executive space that I will give my time if I know the exact return for my time that I'm going to get. And when you're dealing with cultural behavioral things, that's not always an easy thing to commit to and promise and say, like, well, you give me two hours and you'll get four hours back in terms of people loving you. I don't right? like you, there's no equation that I can put on on, on that kind of thing. So yeah, that's my favorites. I'm going to piggyback on that. And I think the other area similar to that is they want to know how to be measure this. Everything you bring up to these leaders as recommendation is like, so how are we going to measure this? And what they don't 
really understand is we can measure all day long, but if you really want to see change, you got to put in the effort. You got to put in the work. And you can see all the reports, fancy reports with numbers and dig into it, look smart by presenting it on your presentations all day long. But if you're not going to put in the effort to really see real change, then don't expect those numbers to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you have to lead with the commitment that you made and stick to the commitment and put in the effort and the numbers will speak for itself. But if you're leading with numbers and you're so worried about how the numbers are going to look, then put in the effort for it. And that's like another constant excuse. And I think it's, it's like ingrained in organizations where everything has to be measured. I get it. But there's certain things that you, you just can't lead with metrics. Things like culture, things where how people feel at work, how they are treated at work, how they are valued at work, and how they are inclusive or included. These kind of things are not easy to measure. And even if there are abilities to measure, you don't lead with it. Yeah. And when there are solutions being brought to you, instead of considering the solutions for what they are and ideas for what they are, they are so hung up on you know, the measurements and metrics and what's the proof this has worked in the past and how can you prove it and so forth that I'm almost wondering at times, like, are these guys ever going to be original if all they want to know is who's done it before so I can, like, just copy? Like, everybody has a unique situation, unique problem, and every solution is going to have to be unique. And while there might be similar situations that we would have solved and brought in solutions to, your solution is unique for you. And you have to take into consideration the value of that solution not ask for evidence that it works before even trying it. And those are some of the kind of excuses and quite honestly frustrations we have with some of the decision makers and leaders and cultures. And there's very cultures that we're trying to transform come in the way of transformation yeah. with these attitudes, with these excuses, with these questions. And they, 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 they're the biggest obstacle in their own way for most part of the time. Yeah. There's a big difference between when a leader says, I want my survey results to come back and say that they love working here. And we're like, do you want them to actually love working here? <laughs> like they're more, they're more concerned with the, the survey results than they are just how happy are your actual people in a real way. And that is, that has been a huge frustration. Frank, oh, sorry, Chris, go ahead. I was going to say, it goes back to a quote that um, one of our, our, um, clients was talking about and she said that <clears throat> at some point you have to realize that weighing the calf doesn't fatten the calf and in texas we do calf right like, you know we raise cattle for you know beef but all of us you know all of us have at least five <laughs> yeah it's like yeah sorry in advance to any vegetarians or um folks who are not a fan of uh, of this idea of calf raising and eating beef but when it comes to um measurement Right. We can measure everything, but it doesn't mean that you're actually doing the things necessary to change those metrics. Mm -hmm. And so many executives, as Mohammed has mentioned, put the focus on the on the measurement and not on the work required to change said me measurement or metrics. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, I I remember there was a, a foreign exchange student in high school and she was utterly shocked that we didn't all ride horses. 
in Texas. Like she was convinced <laughs> that we all rode horses to and from school and she was very disappointed that we drove in cars. Yeah. Did you say utterly on purpose? Was that a I did. Fun? I did. I hope okay, she caught that. It. So one of the one of the other excuses that we've we've heard, and and this is something that goes back to our culture of love, right? So like as we're talking about this, you know, Softway has um, this philosophy around what it takes to build a culture um, that is that is loving. Love is a business strategy, right? But instead of just we're not talking about romantic entanglements when we're talking about love or like hugs per day quota. That's creepy. What we're talking about is tangible, actionable steps that people can take to showcase care. And, you know, it's it's these six pillars. It's inclusion, empathy, vulnerability, trust, empowerment, forgiveness. And when people hear those words, they typically, auto, almost automatically, we've had people look at it and say, uh, well, we already have a set of values. And, and our, our, our values are courage, bold, kindness, right? Like, they're, they're not the diversity. same word. Integrity. Integrity. <laughs> Integrity. We go all day. Excellence. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what I'm saying is that we, when people say that they already have values, most of the time, these organizations are creating these values to be public facing. Like, because when, when we've talked to boots on the ground about how much the word diversity really matters to them in the workplace. What they say is that there's just, there's misalignment there. So when folks talk about values, what they're afraid of is that we're going to overlay these words that we talk about when we define the culture of love and somehow replace their values. What, what we try to help explain is that the reality is if you're trying to create kindness inside of your organization, what steps are you taking to do that? Because you can't just say we're kind you actually have to create action plans around that to create an environment where kindness can be fostered, right? And so when you take these words of our culture of love, these six pillars, they're not values, they're action statements. And what we've tried to help showcase to our clients is that these words actually enhance your values. They bring your values to fruition to where people can actually say, I actually believe in that value that this company has that it's not just a mantra that's showcased to create public awareness, but it's actually something that people can believe in. And what we've heard in the past is that, you know, because we're using different terminology, it's not going to sync up with the way that we're trying to approach things in our company. But in reality, what we're trying to do is build a foundation where their value system is actually practiced and preached and lived out in a very tangible way. Where these things stand out the most to me is when we're talking to, you know, decision makers, but those that are under the pressure of higher decision makers, right? You have mm -hmm. middle management or even, you know, higher management, but still they were kind of handed this task or even this position was created to do this. And you see so many, so much evidence here of, of um, the reality of the, of the level of effort this business wants to put into what they outwardly say they want to do, right? Because either that position was given no power or no real decision-making ability, or that the person who's running this initiative or trying to figure this out is operating basically under fear or basically unable to, to move anything because they're more concerned with how this will optically look than producing real tangible results. And we see that in so many ways when it comes to, you know, sharing what it's going to take in terms of that effort we talk about in terms of that time and let's be honest money right to make this done to get this done right for a lot of businesses 
And as soon as they get to that conversation, they're like, well, you know, that's not going to look good when I bring that, that, that uh, price tag or when I bring up that time commitment, that's going to disrupt our business a little bit and that's not going to look good. And, and that's when you start really questioning what it means for a business to say they prioritize something or that they, they, you know, that this is their number one objective and, you know, actions are just not speaking, you know, as uh, actions speak louder than words every time. And that's kind of part of our, our huge frustration, right? Yeah. So, and I think the, the times where I've experienced what you just talked about, Jeff, like it's, it's really unfortunate when you are partnering with someone who quote unquote was empowered, but the recommendations come forward, right? We worked with them to build those recommendations. They go to their executive leaders and those executive leaders, it's not just the, you know, we're not committed to this or we're limiting our time, but they start to recreate and redraft the recommendations from the expert they hired to come and give them recommendations. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, when the assignment is, is given, like, I trust you, you're the expert. Let's let's hear what you have to say. <laughs> recommendations come out. Ooh, um, <laughs> let's redo the, redo, rewrite that one. We're not comfortable with that one yet. Like we need to do this. All right. And it, they get redrafted to the comfort levels and the preferences of the executive mm -hmm. leaders, which to me is oftentimes a death knell to the success of whatever initiative that person was hired to do. Mm. I think another example like that is if the executive team is like serious about an element of culture, let's say, for example, DNI, right? Like we've seen a lot of that happen where there have been public commitments made by corporations. We're committed to diversity and inclusion. And for that purpose, we're going to come in and assign, we're, we're creating a position, an official DNI position, and we're going to assign this person, more than likely a minority background person. Um, uh, you know, assigned to that position. And then you look at the real authority and powers that this person has. It's like they're five or six levels down to the executive team. They have to report into the very organizational functions that are probably guilty for making their place not inclusive to begin with, aka sometimes HR. And so you have a leadership team that's committed to transforming their organization to become inclusive. Yet they'll create a DNI position, uh, assign a dedicated person to it, and place them in the function that they're supposed to literally go and audit and say, "Hey, listen, what you've been doing, it ain't working. You need to change." And like that's gonna work. And then that information never gets to the executive team, and it's like the very systems and uh, processes and structures organizationally that you've put in place that have been oppressive and marginalizing uh, minorities and or any group that's marginalized, they're placing that very person to work against that system to solve that problem. Way to go. I mean, like your commitment is never going to come into fruition because you are pretending to act on this initiative and commitment, but you are placing them into the very oppressive systems that you're trying to change. And you're asking them to work within those systems to change those systems. That ain't gonna happen, guys. You wanna make a commitment, you better be there. You better be there by the side of the person that you're empowering, give them full autonomy, give them empowerment, not place them under the very oppressive functions that may have created the problem to begin with. Like, have you, that's, have that's you the kind of problem. 
<laughs> no, I would tell you that this is a, <clears throat> it's a conversation that is rising up in the DNI practitioner space, but it's yeah. still controversial because right now, typically DNI falls within HR. And if you study HR practices, like they are the ones who have created a lot of the oppressive systems, a lot of the processes that undermine and marginalize underrepresented persons of color, women, and other minority groups and communities in the workplace, and expecting them to want to, A, admit that they are the ones who created that, which is a big step, um, but two, want to fix that proactively is a second step. And whether we like it or not, it does dismantle or undo the work of DNI when you are reporting into a, a function that is not willing to reconsider everything that is on the table and sort of allow for the right mindset and the right, you know, I would say conversations to take place to ensure that everyone in the organization is treated equitably um, when it comes to access and opportunity. <clears throat> and so what a lot of um, DNI practitioners are asking for is to report directly to the CEO. So that way, DEI is just not sitting in HR, but it can touch every business line equally, equitably across the business, right? Because right now we focus just on the HR side, but there's still procurement that has to have a, a DNI sort of bent in perspective. Same with legal, same with operations, customer support, all those areas still have DNI issues that are, are not always connected to an employee. It's also related to how you treat customers, how you respond to the community, how you purchase and procure your goods, how you treat legal issues, like all of that is impacted. But when you say you're committed to DNI, you're saying that you're committed to all of those things, not just to making sure that you're recruiting minorities and you're promoting them in, in your organization. That is a huge part of it, but that's not the only part of it. But unfortunately, um, in in, in these times and because it's so it's a newer conversation emerging inside of the executive leadership team and I would say in a real way um, unfortunately that insight and that desire is not always accompanied with the interest yeah but it's not that complicated to understand right because right. this is not this kind of issues like quality when you think about quality assurance you know organizations have figured out that you don't put QA inside of your production lines. You don't put QA inside of your project management groups. Like they have to sit outside. They have to be this independent group function that can, without bias, without conflicts of interest, come in and do the job they need to do, right? So it's, it's not that complicated to understand why it needs to be its own function, independent of pressure or conflict of interest. But yet we see this uh, organizations and leaders, oh, that's part of HR. So put it in HR. I'm like, don't you get it? Like you're having problems because of the way you've been operating in HR. Mm -hmm. You can't solve this problem by putting the solution in the same basket. Like let, let, let keep it outside. Like let it let it come from an outside perspective to solve this problem. They obviously haven't been aware. They're not self-aware of what they've caused. And it's and and to be honest, it's not an intent issue. I believe these leaders have good intent. I believe these HR functions have good intent, that they really do want to make a commitment to solve the problem, but they're unable to do it because of lack of self-awareness and and yeah. their unconscious biases that have that that consume them. And and for as long as you're gonna keep this type of a initiative under those same functions, it's gonna be really a challenge for whoever you put in that position to try and 
fight the very same mindsets and systems and lack of awareness to bring about this uh, change. Yeah. And I also think, you know, getting to some of the, the, <clears throat> the things that we've been talking about, I think one of the other, it's not just an excuse, but it's also sort of a, a out that people have is when, when you are about to partake in a culture initiative, it also means that leaders have to start embodying and changing their behavior. Mm -hmm. And that is a very tall order to ask someone. And if that, if that CEO is not requesting that or demanding that, sometimes it does fall flat, no matter how well-intentioned the stakeholder is or the executive sponsor is, because going to a CEO who has no idea that by saying they want to change their culture, they have to change it with themselves first. Um, it's just, it's a hard thing yeah. to get people to that stage of, one, um, introspecting to a place where like, you know, I think in my, in my philosophy, everyone wants change, but few people want to change. And when you are saying that you are changing your organization, and if you say that DNI is important, you're saying that culture is important, which means that culture is going to change to fit a more inclusive and state of belonging for every employee. Um, and if you're not willing as a leader and as leaders, the full leadership team, to understand that we have to embody this change before we can expect it from anybody beneath us, which means that it doesn't make sense to start rolling out change management if you haven't changed yourself in this space. That reminds me. That reminds me of the group we worked with, where where we we already went through this huge back and forth trying to offer. We we're talking about Seneca, the product we offer, which is a leader transformation session, right? And it takes it takes. Uh, the sessions we were offering them were, were two full days of, of in-person facilitation to help kickstart their transformation. And after finally kind of getting them to say, okay, yeah, we see that we can commit to this. We're going to do this. We're going to get all our leaders into these sessions. They come to us and they said, well, by the way, though, the boss, the big guy, um, he's just going to attend half day on day one and he'll be late to day two. And we look at them, we're like, how do you think that's a going to look to all the other leaders <laughs> that this guy doesn't need to do these things? And, and, and B, what is that saying about commitment to this, to this change? And it's just, it's mind boggling to see that kind of, that they said that with a straight face as if, yeah. And, and we, yeah, we, had to, we literally had to go back to the drawing board yeah. saying, no, um, if this is going to be a problem, let's literally reschedule this to something that, this leader can make because I don't think you realize that when he committed to it, he was the first to have to show commitment in a real actionable way. But what's uh, so funny about the organization is they were always worried about optics when it came to spend, when it came to how, you know, initiatives were being introduced, right? Like optics mattered when it came to culture, behavior, you know, leadership training, that was not even a consideration, right? Yeah. You know, I remember going to some of their events where leaders would be off to the side doing everything but paying attention to what their, you know, reports were listening to or receiving. And it was always like for an organization that cared about its optics, like that was a huge miss, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's that's do as I say, not as I do. And the the problem is that that has incredible consequences because you're showing people that you know, number one, there's this le this level of, of ego, essentially, of like, hey, I already know all this stuff. I don't need to worry about. It. I don't. I don't. I don't need to change, but you do, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and if and if there's an opportunity to to talk about culture transformation, behavior transformation, and folks are not embodying that, 
it's seen as a flavor of the month. And then people don't not trust the organization even less um, because leaders aren't willing to commit. The other funny thing that leaders do is like, oh, you're committed to change. So let me pick the person that I like the most to help with change from within my organization, who probably is very close to you, behaves like you, acts like you, reminds you of you, <laughs> and you want to put them in charge of culture change. And this person is never going to come and tell you, hey, you are responsible to change first. And you know, a lot of these organizations will have internal initiatives to change their culture. And, but these people who are assigned to help with culture change internally don't have the courage, don't have the conviction to go to their bosses and tell them what they need to hear. Mm -hmm. So they try to play around the politics. They try to figure out how to play with the system. How do you maneuver around the system of getting the time from the executive, getting a yes to buy into something, getting a yes to approve into something, and they barely make a difference. They cannot move forward. They cannot go speak the truth to their leadership because they are scared for their jobs. They are scared for what these bosses are going to do to them. And so you're really assigning people to fail. You are setting them up for failure from the get-go if you think you can change culture from within. No, it's not possible. You can't set people inside of the very systems and the very culture to change the culture from within. Sometimes you have to have external parties to come in and let you hear what you need to hear. You need to hear the truth. And sometimes your own people cannot tell you the truth for sometimes valid reasons because they're threatened by the fact that they could lose their jobs. So if you really want to institute change inside of your organization for the betterment of culture, DNI, I think it is in your own valid interest to bring about a third party consultant who can tell you things you need to hear so that you are bringing about self-awareness for yourself and your organization to change. But if you're not willing to do that and you are assigning people these amazing titles of culture manager and chief culture officer and chief DNI officer, but don't give them power, authority, or the security to be able to do what they're set out to do, then do not expect to see a difference. And that is something we are seeing quite a bit because they don't want to prioritize this truly. And a lot of the times they may do it to heed the demands of the public or their people that, oh, there's a need, or they just do it, to be honest. Oh, all my competitors are saying this, so we need to do it too. But they really don't believe they need to change. And so we see this all the time. And we have to like really dismantle that and dismantle those excuses and those mindsets and those attitudes, which quite honestly is why they are where they are to begin with. If they have toxic cultures, it's it's why they do. That's very yeah. telling. Mm. So yeah. let me see if I can wrap <laughs> up and, and close out this the saltiest episode ever. Is, um, yeah. So, I mean, and, and there's good reason for the salt, right? Like we, we get frustrated when we're, we're in this business because we have a very real passion for this, for not just our own organizations, but everyone we meet, everyone we work with in the world at large when it comes to bringing humanity to the workplace. And this is such a big part of it. And it is frustrating to hit these walls where we realize that people aren't 
you know, aren't committed. And so why do we share this? I mean, this episode is intended to kind of share that with you so you can help, could help understand what commitment might really look like. When you commit to a change, when you see someone commit to a change, if you are in an organization that is committing to change, what should you be expecting and seeing? What are the actions, not the words that are around you? And what can you do? Because I think we all have a, a potential role we can play in putting you know, action into motion here when it comes to change. So it's a real investment. It takes effort. It takes you know, a willingness. It takes time. And it takes a, a real um, case for change. It takes for a real like desire for, your, for, for something to really happen. And we, we're really inspired by that message. We hope that you guys out there also kind of see that in your world and find your own your own truths around it. So with that, I'd like to thank Muhammad, Chris, and Frank for this deliciously salty episode. Uh, and here at Love as a Business Strategy, we're definitely going to keep posting episodes every Tuesday. If you like what you heard, stop by software.com slash labs, L-A-A-B-S, and, and let us know. And if you really enjoyed this episode, you know, share it with a friend. You know, don't forget to share the love as a business strategy podcast. <laughs> Very good, <laughs> And with that, uh, we'll be signing off and we'll see you next week. Bye.